This episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club is an audio version of an episode originally made for YouTube. To see the original with any pictorial references, please visit www.youtube.com slash folklore podcast and click on the book club playlist. Hello and welcome to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. I'm Mark Norman, folklore author and researcher, and the creator and host of the Folklore Podcast. On today's episode of the Book Club, I speak to Dr Sharon Blackie about her book, Foxfire, Wolfskin, and Other Stories of Shapeshifting Women. So first, Sharon, welcome on to the Folklore Podcast Book Club. It's lovely to have you here. And it's lovely to be here. Thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure. Uh, So today we are talking about your book, Foxfire Wolfskin. But before we do that, uh, just tell everybody a little bit about who you are and what you do for those that are not so familiar with your work at the moment. Yeah, well, I've got a lot of ologies, I'm afraid. I originally trained as a psychologist and um, I consider myself mostly a mythologist with a specialist in, in Celtic studies, I suppose. Um, and that's where my interest in folklore comes in, because when I did my master's degrees in Celtic studies, uh, my dissertation was very much on folklore, on the folklore specifically of the the Kaliak, you know, the old woman of um, Gaelic and Gaelic folklore who um, created and shaped the land. And um, uh, most of it, most of my writing, uh, my work these days would be on that kind of melange of psychology, possibly in the Jungian, kind of post-Jungian context. And mythology with a bit of ecology thrown in so it's very much about how these have folklore and fairy tales and myth connects us back to a sense of belonging yeah. to our places to the land that would really be the the, the heart of both fiction and non-fiction for me and that, that's also why isn't it i guess we find that the Jungian approach crops up so much in in both well, actually fiction and especially obviously non-fiction folklore work is that that idea of belonging and that sense of being part of something kind of ties in with the idea of the collective folk memory and and why we get that feeling, doesn't it? So I'm not surprised to hear you say that. Yeah, it does. I mean, the only thing about some of the traditional Jungian work, which is based on Jung's early ideas, is that it tends to be very focused in our own heads. You know, it's very human centric. Mm. Whereas if you look at later Jung in his later life and some of the post Jungian work, it's very much more about trying to get us out of our heads and into the land again and into the stories of the land and connect up a little bit more so that it's not too human. And that's really my passion, I suppose, for, for that kind of approach. Yeah, which is exactly where this book goes, isn't it? So tell us a little bit uh, about the the premise of this book. I mean, it, it's, it's obvious from the title, um, Other Stories of Shape-Shifting Women being the kind of subtitle from what I said earlier, that it is obviously a book of um, women's stories sat within folk tales um, and a very empowering and a very positive treatment of that as well. So tell us a little bit about how this came together. Well, I guess really, you know, I've always loved fairy tale reimaginings or retellings, starting with the wonderful work of the inimitable Angela Carter and Mm. her ilk um, when they really first started to take off uh, in the last century. But it seemed to me that although a lot of um, fairy tales had been retold or folklore 
uh, folktales have been retold from a feminist perspective, very few of them had moved into the kind of environmental crisis age, you know, and hadn't really combined them. And I don't see so much of that happening. So given that I am clearly, as, as someone who studied folklore, a great believer in the importance of these stories continuing to have relevance over the years and over the centuries, continuing to grow, to shift and to shape shift and to transform themselves, it just interested me to think, OK, how would if those if those stories were told today to have relevance for the problems and issues we're facing today, how would they look? And specifically, what would those women's voices sound like? What would they have to say to us? So it really began um, from that whole question that, that I was asking myself. And then, of course, you know, as you well know, Celtic um, myth and fairy tale particularly is so full of shape-shifting particularly in, in in women that it just seemed like an obvious place to start and that in that attempt to get us out of our heads and back into the world again and there's a very broad mix of tales here as well isn't there i mean there are some very well-known ones so um you've got this the scottish story just flicking through um of the water horse the yakushka which is a very well-known story for example um and you've you've got the the premise of the witch turning into a hare which which is very very um uh common with it within our own folklore um but there's a range of of stories across a range of countries in here as well and some that are not so well known what are some of the less no well-known stories that you've given a new treatment to in this collection <laughs> Well, I think um, there's a beautiful, for example, there's a beautiful old Irish, um, I guess it's, a, it's a somewhere between myth and, and romance, really, the, the, the madness of Mish, uh, which mm. is about a woman who, who basically goes mad because of the traumas of, of battle. She sees a battle and her father killed. She goes mad. She, she grows feathers and wings and flies off into the mountains and um, is rescued by a very, not by some great hero, but by a very gentle man who plays his harp and offers her all kinds of things um, that, are, that, are, that, are much, uh, that are much finer for her and kind of brings her back to life that way. So uh, that story has always really appealed to me and it's a very powerful story that's not very well known. So I was trying to really find it wasn't so much that I was looking for stories that were well known or less well known it was really that I was looking for the powerful women's voices in the stories wherever they were all of the stories were European or you know I guess the Babi Yaga story kind of Eastern European because I don't feel comfortable stepping outside of my own culture um, and owning those stories and a couple of the stories were my own creations so the bogman's wife for example which is about a trout which shapeshifts into a woman i guess there are stories about that i've never actually found very many of them but that because i lived in a i lived in the isle of lewis in the outer hebrides for a, for a long period of time with all of those waterways filled with with a little trout it just kind of captured my imagination and sprung up organically from the land so yeah wolfskin uh, from the title is a croatian story which is kind of like a Croatian version of the, the Scottish Selkie story of the yeah. seal woman who loses her skin. But in Croatia, 
you know, it, it's about a wolf woman whose skin is stolen, not a seal woman. So a lot of the tropes, a lot of the motifs are the same, you know, as we always find in folklore, don't we? But it's just that the actual clothing that the, the stories wear are a little bit different from place to place. Yes, it's an example, isn't it, of, of how uh, folk tales travel around and remain the same in essence, but they take on that cultural um, kind of appropriation, I guess, of, of what people find around them. So it would be natural in Croatia, where where seals are, are not ten a penny. Let's be honest. Right. To to um, take on what is a much more common animal in the wolf, and, and and of course within folklore and folk tale, wolf skins come up in various different ways. Anyway, so it's an interesting look at how these stories kind of change and develop from place to place, isn't it? Yes, it is. And, you know, the, there are two stories in there about old women. So one about the Kaliach, uh, the old woman of um, Irish and Scottish Isle of Manx tradition, who created and shaped the land, and Babi Yaga from the Russian tradition, where you could argue that, you know, from a Jungian perspective, they're the same archetype. They're the slightly dangerous old woman of the world who doesn't really want to be messed with. But they're, you know, very different iterations in both of those countries and very different flavours um of the personality and the characteristics around them and i love that i love that variety uh, in the stories as well and i i do excuse me i do like the variety as well of the ways that you've reinterpreted these stories and, and the baba yaga story i guess is a prime example of that where, where you do feel within the first couple of pages like you're suddenly reading the literary equivalent of the only way is russia <laughs> it becomes very much a kind of you know celebrity culture story tell us a little bit about that one because it is uh thoroughly entertaining about the other story yeah that's a, that's a bit of a wicked story um and i'll probably be be um have thro- rotten tomatoes thrown at me if i ever find my way to totness um as a result of that story <laughs> I, I, do live, I do live about an hour away from totness just oh, so you know, okay. yeah I know Devon very well, but not Tetanus. Tetanus, I just couldn't, I couldn't resist it. That story was a really weird one. I don't know where that came from. I didn't really intend to write it. It just came, kind of, it just arrived. I just sat down one morning. I was thinking about Baba Yaga, and again, you know, if Baba Yaga came to us today, what would she have to say about the mess that we're in? And so it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a, um, a satire on, I guess, the the, the worst um, atrocities of the New Age movement, I, I suppose. Um, in that she is a very earthy woman, clearly who lives in the middle of a wood, and there is a there is a slightly less earthy woman who goes to to her to learn what she thinks is to engage with her power animal in a shamanic sense, whereas actually Baba Yaga wants to turn her into a deer, uh, you know, into a real kind of like proper shape shifting animal. And I think to me it comes back again. All of these stories came from. I didn't just want to change the plot of them. Do you know? Mm. So it wasn't about reimagining always the endings or the narrative. It was about reimagining the voices of the women, literally. And so that's why I think they're so different because the the women in these stories are so different. So Baba Yaga is having none of, of, of what she sees as this new age nonsense. You know, she wants, she wants people to show up and to do the work. Um, and that's kind of why she, she puts the, the, the young woman from Totnes through such a hard time. <laughs> <laughs> and, and there's another very, um, very well-known female uh, <clears throat> from folklore within here as well, isn't there? And, and that's the Snow Queen, who, oh, yeah. who everybody will know from 
Hans Christian Andersen or from from the ideas within the Narnia stories which adopt the Snow Queen character as well. How have you treated the uh, the role of the Snow Queen within your version? Well, th- that story sprang from the fact that I always thought the Snow Queen had a bit of a bad rap, you know, because mm-hmm. if you go back to the original Hans Christian Andersen story, she's not presented as evil. She's presented as elemental. She is winter. You know, she, she has no spite. She takes the little boy. She looks after him in her wintry way. She is described as going out into the world to bring the necessary winter to the vineyards and to the growing things so that everything gets a chance to rest. So when the kind of likes of Disney and all of these kind of um, uh, books and movies started to present the Snow Queen or Snow Queen analogues as a baddie, it really offended me (laughs) because she is, she is a necessary part of the seasons and cycles of the world. So I always felt a bit sorry for that, 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 that had happened. And, you know, given that I said at the beginning that what this book was about was trying to imagine or reimagine these stories for an age of environmental crisis, I just wondered, you know, what would, if, if global warming is the problem, does the Snow Queen become a heroine in her own very wintry way? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was, that was the, the spurt <laughs> for that. What, maybe she's the one who saves us in the end. So let's just consider for a little bit that role of of women within folk tales. Um, You you touched there upon the fact that the Snow Queen starts off at the very least neutral uh, in in Anderson's story, certainly not some kind of malevolent force or or some kind of threat, uh, but then changes. And in a lot of folk tales, we find the role of the woman in this way, don't we? you know, the evil stepmother or, or, or somebody that's uh, either being persecuted or is persecuting. Mm-hmm. Um, very rarely, I guess, compared to the amount of hero stories, do we find those heroine stories. Why do you think that is? Well, I'm not entirely sure I agree, to be honest. Um, I think what's happened, and this is just my personal perspective, I'm not suggesting that I'm right, it's just kind of maybe my focus is going looking for the heroine stories, so I, you know, I find them uh, by default. But I think actually it's possibly just that they've been given less attention. Mm. But, you know, particularly in Scotland, Ireland, and, and parts of England are full of feisty heroines who save the hero. Um, you know, you've got um, Kate Krakenuts, um, or who save their their sisters, or whatever. Everything from Kate Krakenuts to um, the the um, East of the Sun and West of the Moon, um, the Black Bull of Norway, where they save their husbands, even if they've been partly responsible for getting them into the mess in the first place. You mm-hmm. know, and I think often we forget how many of those stories there are, and in those stories, often. The, the the heroine is very different from the hero in that the help the, the helpers and the natural world always seem to be a really profoundly intrinsic part of her overcoming whatever problem she is facing mm-hmm. so it's almost always done with animal helpers or um you know with a mother who's turned into a tree after she's died or something like that and I find them very very connecting Uh, and perhaps in a sense that reflects the old mythology 
of Britain and Ireland and the other Celtic lands where, you know, women were so very much associated with the land, kind of personifying the land in a way mm. and shape shifting into animals. And that in a sense is carried down, I think, into the folklore. So I find these stories fascinating and they're everywhere. But the ones that have, have been more popular and the ones certainly that the likes of Disney have filmed have been the ones where you have these kind of, you know, these pretty little heroines who aren't very useful for very much, who who do what they wanted good women to do in the times, which is, you know, do what the men say and be quiet most of the time and wait to be rescued. And there's so much more than that. Life was so much more interesting than that. But the wicked stepmother, it's just worth pointing out that, you know, again, as you're, you're well aware, these fairy tales reflect the problems of the times. And um, and there would have been many deaths of, of mothers in childbirth in the times when these fairy stories were, were, were first beginning to be written down, even let alone in the oral tradition before then, where, you know, a stepmother, a younger stepmother, with a child of her own perhaps would have come into a family and maybe there would have been a squabble for very meager resources. So I think at some level, it's not just prejudice against women. I think it does actually reflect some of the unfortunate um, social issues around at the time. Yes, absolutely. And, and it kind of reflects that struggle for power, even if that power mm. is within an individual household, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Exactly. Do you find from the research that you've done to both write these stories and around this subject, which which I know is one that you're particularly interested in, that it is predominantly women that feature in shape-shifting stories? Yeah. Why do you yeah. think that is? Um, well, certainly in the in, in kind of the Celtic tradition, if I can if I can use that word, it, it is true. I don't know. I, I wouldn't consider myself enough of an expert in other you know folklore from other parts of Europe or of the Slavic countries to say that but in Celtic tradition yes it is and that is just simply because in the very oldest stories the stories that we might think of as myths because they are about deities and uh, rather than the lives of, of kind of the folk um, we do find that seamless transition from humanoid to animal form as a natural part of of their way of being in the world so you know this was not a, a cosmology this was not a spiritual tradition in which the humanoid form was the only one that was seen to be important our ancestors believed that there was a wisdom in animals which we as humans were not privileged to and which sometimes we needed so you know you've got for example that wonderful old welsh story of the oldest animals i know it's a motif that occurs in other places as well where you know when king arthur is out looking for um for mabon son of modron uh, and he's looking for for a clue to to find him and him and his um his knights or his band of warriors at that time they go to the oldest people in the village the oldest people in the village don't know they go to the older people in the next village they don't know they send them to the animals the animals send them to the older animals and the older animals till eventually they end up with the oldest animal and the oldest animal is the one that knows it so that sense that there is a wisdom in animals um, that we would do well to respect uh, because it's different from ours it's a different way of perceiving the world i think is inherent in the oldest stories that we have and probably then travel down for that way into you know into the into the folklore and the fairy tales and it just became one of those things it's like yeah some days you're a human some days you're an animal <laughs> we should probably mention the other um story from your title uh, out out of fairness as well so we, we touched upon wolfskin 
uh, and, and the Croatian story behind that. Um, tell us what the story is for Foxfire, which is the other one that you've chosen to put in your title. Yeah, well, that was not really, although it, it's based on a character, the, the Huldra, um, in the Nordic tradition, that wasn't actually based on a particular story. That was my that was my story, if you like. So that was more fiction rather than uh, a reimagining. Um, and again, it was that sense of, which I've certainly had, of just wanting desperately at certain stages in my life, actually quite a lot of stages in my life, I think, to, to know what it would be to be a fox, to know what it would be to be an animal, you know, a real sense of identification, of love for an animal like that. And I think a lot of women, possibly men too, I, you know, I, I've never looked at it so much in men, feel that sense of, of identification that is so close that it becomes like a love. And, um, and that sense of the animal and the the foxness drawing her out of um, a period of stasis, a period of mourning, a period of grief by kind of putting her back in touch with her, what you might think of as her animal self. So that sense of animals, again, is having something that we need to, showing us the way, helping us, just as they do in all the best fairy tales, but in a very, very specific way here was kind of the motivation for that. But the, the thing about that, the thing about a lot of these stories as well, which is just one point I wanted to, to make is, what I love about some of these old stories is the, the very oldest stories is they have consequences, you know? So again, in a lot of the more re modern retellings, it's just like, they're very unsatisfying. Even the Selkie story is very unsatisfying. This guy stole her skin and kept her captive for seven years and off she walks into the sea and he gets to live his life. It's that seems to be very unsatisfying sometimes. Whereas in the oldest stories in the oldest, the, the ones that we might think of as myths, you know, if you mess up, there are consequences. If you don't keep the the balance between humans and the land, the land becomes a wasteland or there's an inundation, there's a flood. You know, if you mess up once too often, then something happens. And so I also wanted to reinstate in some of these stories, not a kind of unpleasantness, um, but just a sense of there are consequences to our actions if we don't treat the world and people and animals in it well. Well, that's one very important point from within folk tales and within folklore more generally, I suppose, isn't it? Is that it is a teaching aid, uh, you know, whether that's the Victorians teaching morality through their stories or whether it's these older stories with the consequences for the land and those sorts of things. It is, uh, you know, one of the best forms of teaching, isn't it? The, the yeah. art of storytelling. Yeah, absolutely absolutely and i think that what's interesting now is we're kind of circling around a little bit you know so some of the older stories which teach us about how to live in balance and harmony with the land yeah. and how not to take too much are the very stories that we need again right now and you know i look back at some of the old irish stories like the story of the glass gavelin the, the cow of plenty basically you know, and who's milked into a sieve. You know, everybody's allowed mm. to take a bucket of her milk. I'm sure most of your listeners will know this story, but everybody's allowed to take a bucket of her milk until one day a woman comes along with a sieve and many buckets so that it doesn't appear as if, you know, because the sieve is empty all the time, it doesn't appear as if the buckets are ever full. And once the glass gavelin, the cow plenty, cottons onto what's happening, off she flies and, and is never seen again in the world. 
and there is no more milk. Um, and those those old stories, although they seem very simplistic, I think there's a really profound because of the way that they present themselves and the the potency of the imagery and the simplicity of the story. There's a very profound teaching there that can kind of sink into you, lodge into you and stay with you. And that to me is the power of, of folk and fairy tales, you know, the beauty of it and the simplicity of those imagery. Absolutely. Images. Absolutely. And, it, and, it, and it's really, really well represented as well within this book, which, which is uh, the wonderful thing about it. I just want to, before we finish, uh, touch on one other thing, which is that it is also a beautifully presented book. And I just want to mm -hmm. give you the opportunity to mention the um, illustration for this book as well, because aside from the cover, which people saw at the beginning of this video, uh, which is very beautiful, my copy from the publisher came with beautiful little postcards in like this, which are <laughs> representations of some of the illustrations which head up the stories in the book. How did those come about? Well, um, I always love, because, because fairy tales particularly are so image full uh it just seemed to me that these really did warrant someone taking an imaginative approach to trying to illustrate them as all the best fairy tale you know i've got collections of old fairy tale books and folklore books that have got the most beautiful illustrations in and they they help you retain the story you know they kind of they enhance the message of the words and it was my publisher who found helen nicholson who is the young artist who um created these stories uh, created these drawings and yeah they're 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 just unique i would never i don't some of them are just completely unexpected mm. um and yet they all represent some essence of the story uh in, in a very very perfect way so i was really absolutely delighted to have her um to have her illustrations as part of it and in the paperback cover as well to have it incorporated by the the designer into the paperback cover their animals are beautiful Yes, they really are. It's, it's a lovely way of illustrating them. So if, if people want to see that to full effect, then they should get a copy of the book, obviously. If they want to learn more about yourself and, and your writing, uh, do you have a web presence that you'd like to direct people to? Yes, I do. People can go to my website, which is just SharonBlackie.net. And there's lots of resources on my books on there, including um, readers group kind of questions and, and guides and, and what have you, and um, various other resources on folklore and fairy tales as well. And can they purchase from you directly? No, I don't sell my own books, but um, there's a link to my publisher's website. So if they prefer to, to um, buy from lovely independent publishers who produce beautiful books, then <laughs> they can do that by following the link on the website too. But they're available everywhere, of course. Absolutely, absolutely. And as an ebook. And as an ebook, yeah, Kindle yes. and, um, and other ebook formats too, yeah. Perfect. So Foxfire Wolfskin is published by September Publishing. There's a link to their website via Sharon's. Um, if you wish to also do so, we would always uh, suggest that you support your independent bookshop. If you are close to one, they'll also be able to order you a copy in. If you prefer e-reading, then you have options for that too. Do seek out a copy and enjoy it as much as I did. Sharon, thank you so much for coming on and talking about this with us. Thanks, Mark. It was a great pleasure.